I entitled our entire series Victory. Now why? Well, let's talk about it. From aliens to royalty, that's the way I see Peter laying out his letter to these early Christians. From aliens to royalty. Victory, as you know, is defined as an act of defeating an enemy or opponent in a battle, game, or other competition. A worthy component, a battle, and a choice outcome. And that's one way of looking at the Christian life, is through the eyes of this idea of victory, right? I mean, victory is better than defeat. So that's why you find a lot of times in Scripture various stories that describe victory. I think of David and Goliath. That's a story of victory. David overcome came a worthy opponent and rescued the nation of Israel. Jericho and the falling of the walls of Jericho, as the early Israelites entered into the promised land, they had to overcome a worthy opponent. That's victory. I thought of Jesus on resurrection morning. That's victory. Overcoming death, the sting of death. I saw someone the other day with a huge tattoo on their side, and it was the 1 Corinthians chapter 15 passage, oh sting, where's your death? Oh sting, where's your victory? It's there is no sting of death because Christ has overcome. And, and so I thought of that. And then I also thought of Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 24. Paul says that we all run a race. And we run the race in order to what? Katalambano in the Greek, which is, means literally to overtake, to take over, to, to acquire, to what? Win, to have victory. We are to live the Christian life to experience victory. And so I find it all throughout Scripture, and I think Peter wants to describe this kind of victory that you're going to live if you follow his instruction and his, his wise counsel. And so I think of you, and I think of your life, and, and I what I'm encouraged about is that we can claim victory in our Christian lives, living out a pattern of victory day by day if we follow the instruction of Peter. Peter, um, uh, Billy Graham, many years ago, probably about 11 years ago, wrote an article uh, and he entitled it Victory in Christ. And, you know, that was kind of a common theme. He loved this idea of victory. And he wrote, he wrote this in his article. He said, a former president once said that America needs a revival. And then he goes on to say, however, I am becoming more and more convinced that we are never going to see revival across America until Christians meet certain scriptural conditions for revival. That's what he said. That was kind of his prediction. And I wrote in my notes, don't be, don't, don't be committed to victory unless you're willing to pay the price. Victory comes at a price. In 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 1 to 9, Peter gives a bit of an overview of the whole letter. And here's how he begins. And I'm going to read it from the New Living Translation. It's a great little way to read. It's easy to understand, and it's very poetic. And here it is. This letter is from Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. I'm writing to God's chosen people who are living as foreigners in the province of Pontus and Galatia and Cappadocia, Asia and Bithynia. This is modern-day northern Turkey. God the Father knew you and chose you a long time ago, and his spirit made you holy. As a result, you are to obey him and, and be cleansed by the blood of Jesus Christ. 
May God give you more and more grace and peace. Verse 3. All praise to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. It is by his great mercy that we have been born again. Now we live with great expectation and we have a priceless inheritance, an inheritance that is kept in heaven for you, pure, undefiled, beyond the reach of change and decay. And though your faith, God is protecting you by power, his power, until you receive the salvation which is ready to be revealed in the last day. So be truly glad. There is wonderful joy ahead. Even though you have endured many trials and will endure many trials ahead of you, these trials will show that your faith is genuine. It is being tested as fire, tests, purifies gold. Through your faith is far more precious than mere gold. So when your faith remains strong through many trials, it will bring you much praise and glory and honor on the day when Christ Jesus is revealed to the whole world. You love him even though you have never seen him. Though you do not see him now, you trust him, and you rejoice with the glorious, inexpressible joy. The reward of your trusting him will be the salvation of your souls. And that's how Peter begins this wonderful, powerful letter. He begins this process by saying, first of all, identifying who you are. You are aliens in a foreign land. That's where he begins. And then he moves quickly to this idea of being an alien that you've been chosen to be obedient to Christ, to live a lifestyle worthy of who you are. And then he talks about this inheritance you're going to have. And then he says, there will be joy, but for a little while you're going to experience some trials. But don't worry, the testing of your faith is more precious than gold. You're going to have to go through a process of testing, but then at the very end, guess what you get? You get a wonderful outcome. It says at the very end of this, it says by the Holy Spirit, what's going to happen is there will be an attaining as to the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. So notice the movement in this passage. This is the movement of the whole letter, beginning with the idea of who you are, your identity, then moving into our lifestyles believers of being obedient to Christ, and then third, moving from that to this idea that through suffering, there's a good outcome. There will be suffering. There, will, there is going to be difficulty. And so what we find, even in this early section of Peter, the three main ideas or themes, as Graham would call them, conditions upon which God might bring revival in your life or victory, I call them characteristics. The characteristics of your life is, number one, that you know who you are, that you live a lifestyle worthy of Christ, and that you suffer well because the outcome is glorious. And I think that's the message of 1 Peter to his audience. So let's talk about those three as we begin our series this morning. I want to just kind of highlight each one of them. Now, Peter probably wrote prior to 64 A.D., And the reason why we know that is by 64 A.D., either between 64 and 67 A.D., there was a major crisis going on. Nero was the emperor. And many believe that that he actually set fire to part of Rome. And in order to cover it up, many people died in this fire. And uh, it was a cruel, cruel thing to do, whether whether it was true that he was the cause of it or not. Some writers actually indicate that he was, and in order to 
shift the blame from himself, he blamed Christians. And there was a heavy persecution in the time of 64 to 67 AD upon Christians that suffered greatly at the hands of the Romans. But prior to that, just prior to that, Peter is probably writing to an audience of mostly non, these are non-Jewish individuals. These are Gentiles. These are people that come from the land of just various, various locations within Rome that probably did not have a Jewish upbringing, did not know about Christ, but probably through their Jewish, probably, probably through the Jewish religion, came to know Christ. So they actually came through the synagogue, through faith, they actually arrived at faith in Christ. And now here they are as Gentiles moving through a religious structure into now a relationship with Jesus. Peter addresses these individuals prior to this massive, heavy persecution that's about to happen. And here's the three things that Peter wants to say. He wants to say that your identity is so important to how you are going to live your life. That obedience is the lifestyle of the believer. And the third, suffering is common for all believers, but it has a great outcome. So let's look at all three of those. The first one is this idea that you're an alien. Do you see that? You're a foreigner in the New Living Translation. So Paul identifies us, first of all, all believers, those living in the first century, and now applying it to us, we're considered aliens. Now, if you look over at chapter 2, verse 11, what you'll also notice is it says, Beloved, I urge you aliens and strangers. So Peter adds a second idea, which is a stranger. Why does he start there? Why is it that we are considered aliens or strangers? And then notice in chapter 2, verse 9, look over 2, 9. Notice who we become. We are aliens and strangers, but we are also, what does it say? A chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. What for? Set aside as God's own possession. Then it says, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. So Peter is saying that you are aliens and strangers. You become a royal priesthood, a holy nation. What's going on here? What is Peter doing? I think what Peter is doing is he's bringing together a dual identity of the believer. It is true that you are an alien and a stranger, and it is also true that you are a royal nation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people set apart apart for God's own possession. That's who you are. You are actually both. So how do we live into both of those? First of all, let's look at alien and stranger. The idea of alien and stranger is literally a foreigner, someone who moves into a land and doesn't have the same rights and privileges but lives among people, not as a full-blown citizen, but as an immigrant, somebody who's moved in and learning and growing and becoming part of a new culture, but they remain separate because they're aliens and they're foreigners. The word alien literally means someone who resides in a given place without the legal protection or rights provided. The idea of a stranger is that you're a temporary resident. You're passing through. Larry Norman was a great old, many, many years ago, he was a 
he, he had Christian albums and would sing, and it was kind of part of the Jesus culture. And he had a song that we are just passing through. We're just passing through. And so how is it that we're these aliens on this earth, but then we become this royal nation, this royal priesthood, this holy nation? See, the first idea, I think, what Peter's trying to identify is using this concept of social structure. And these early believers came out of low social status. Many of them came from the slave status. Many of them came from the the marginalized and disenfranchised of culture. And and they, they probably moved probably from Rome or other places to live in these cities, in these Roman cities. And so they moved out, and here they are, and they find themselves as not citizens, but, but mainly as low social, low in the social structure. Um, but yet, at the same time, what's interesting about this is that they become royal priests. How is that possible? I think what Peter is trying to identify us with is the fact that you and I remain true to who we are, where we've come from. We've come from brokenness. We've come from from a place where we have been marginalized in life. And we've been brought into a whole new community, a whole new group of people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. All of us as believers, every single one of us, has had a past. And he's using their actual backgrounds to describe our spiritual pilgrimage from a past of brokenness, a past of being disenfranchised and marginalized from God, and now moving into a whole new community, this wonderful royal community that you now have. And I thought of that, and I said, well, what's a good example of that? And I thought of Meghan Markle. So many weeks ago, as you remember, the royal distraction, I mean, the royal royal wedding was on. It was on TV in the middle of the night, and some of you got up in the middle of the night and watched it, and it it was a marvelous fantasy come true, right? I mean, one British commentator was talking to another American commentator, so what's all the big deal in America about the royal wedding? And he said, it's all about a fantasy. It's a fantasy come true. She gets to marry her prince. And we're all, we just love the story. And it's a beautiful story. And if you think of Megan and her background, she comes from a typical American family, interracial family, maybe a, a partially broken family as we've seen and understand probably, uh, probably to, to a uh, inappropriate degree by on the basis of the media just kind of exposing her life but in many ways it's an American family broken um, part of a hard-working family and and she has risen up through the American dream and found great success and become became a wonderful person and here she is now as an American moving to the UK to join a royal family she's an alien moving into a whole new way of thinking and in a whole new world. And that's a lot like a believer today. We are never to forget our heritage as we move into our inheritance. Does that make sense? Your heritage is so important. If I could tell Megan one thing, I would say, don't ever forget your past. As you move into this royal family and this new royal responsibility and royal privilege and all the rest of it, don't ever forget who you are. Don't ever forget where you've come from because it will make you a better person. Let me give you an example of what I mean by this new identity with this dual identity of being an alien and a royal priest. A couple 
days ago, I received a text from a fraternity brother of mine. I graduated 35 years ago from the University of California, and I was a fraternity. I was in a fraternity. I was in the Sigma Nu fraternity. I lived there for four years. Built a lot of great friendships. Hung on to many of them, but not a lot. But I remember my time in the fraternity that I was, I was part of the fraternity, and I gave to the fraternity. I was the rush chairman one year, so I gave back to my fraternity and built great relationships. But because of my faith, because of the fact that I chose to live a different lifestyle, I was always treated differently. I was kind of on the outside of the inside. Richard Rohr wrote a great article about this, by the way, and he talked about the living on the outside of the inside. And so I got this, this text that said, hey, a group of us are getting together from our pledge class. We're going to meet at the Jonathan Club on Friday night. We'd love to have you join us. And I thought, what an honor. This is like the inner part of our pledge class. These are the guys and I'm getting invited in. What I realized is when I arrived and got to the 12th floor of the Jonathan Club, went up to the tier, the, to the top level, and, and they were all sitting down. It was a beautiful, beautiful evening, and, and uh, it was just gorgeous looking out all over the buildings of Los Angeles, and they were all gathered and talking and having a good time, and I walked in, and they all got up and gave me a hug and welcomed me into their group and immediately asked the question, tell us about your church and jumped right in. 35 years ago, we had a relationship. 35 years ago, they all knew what I do for a living and what, what kind of my, the, the trajectory of my life over the last 35 years, and they jumped right into that, and we had this great discussion, got them caught up, learned all about their lives. And what I realized that night as we went out to dinner and I drove home, I just got invited to the inside, but I stand on the outside edge of the inside. And what I mean by that is that I'm still kind of an alien, a stranger. I'm not part of the inside culture to, totally. I am because I'm a fraternity brother, and because I invested a lot in those relationships, I'm part of them, but I'm also standing on the outside edge. Because of who I am in Christ, my convictions, the way I live my life, all that I stand for, what I come from, that's who I am. And it was a great privilege to be brought into the inside. And frankly, what I realized is that's a good place to be in life. We are on the outside edge of the inside of institution. The outside edge of the inside of the world. We aren't of the world. We are of Christ. We have a new identity. We have a royal priesthood. We have a responsibility. We're not just privileged by royalty. We are given a responsibility to live that out. And what I realize is that's where you and I exist and where we do and have our best impact is when we play that role. So here's some implications of that. Number one, I wrote, we are a church where all are accepted and loved. From all marginal, we're all marginalized and we accept all marginalized people. That's who we are. And Peter is reminding the church, don't ever forget that. That's the kind of church you are. You're filled with people that have been marginalized in life. And every single one of us have. We come from a broken background. The second thing that I wrote as an implication is that we are to recognize our identity that does not come from the world, but it comes from God. Do you see that? I, you walk into any situation, any environment, you know where your identity comes from. It does not come from the institution. It does not come from the organization. It comes from a higher source. You've been born again. 
You've been changed. You've been invited into a priesthood which has a responsibility. You are in God's family. See yourself not by social ranking, but by spiritual re-imaging. And the third thing I wrote is live as respectful foreigners. One particular commentator, Karen Job, says, dwell respectfully in their host nation, but participate in their culture. And so we, 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 we live out our faith respectfully in a culture that we want to participate in, realizing that we're foreigners passing through, but we're also this royal priesthood with a responsibility to bring hope and light. That's who we are. So it always reminds us, and Peter's going to bring that up over and over again as we move through our series as we talk about living in victory. That's where you find victory. The second thing I wrote is obedience. Notice in this passage that it moves from alien and stranger to obey Jesus Christ and sprinkled with his blood. In fact, all throughout Peter, we find this idea of obedience. Your lifestyle is important. It's, very, it's front and center with Peter. I mean, over. let me just give me examples. Gird your minds for action. Be holy in all your behavior, chapter 1, 13 to 16. 122, fervently love, chapter 2, 2. We are long for the pure, long for the pure milk of God's word. Chapter 2, verse 12. Keep your behavior excellent, Peter says. Chapter 2, 18, all the way to 312. Be a godly servant. Be a godly wife. Be a godly husband. Live differently in the marketplace and in the home. This is your job. This this is what sets you apart. Chapter 4, verse 2. Live for the will, not for the will of man or the passions of the flesh, but for God. Chapter 5, verse 6, humble yourself under the mighty hand of God. So over and over again as we move through this great text, what we discover is that Peter identifies lifestyle, lifestyle, lifestyle choices. Why? We are all called to live out a Jesus way of life in all areas of our life. It's a call to holiness. If you look at 115, which is a key idea, it says, be holy yourselves in all your behavior. It means literally to be set apart. That your behavior is to be set apart, unique, different. Because God is holy. Follow God's lead. You want to have God's character in all your behavior. Now let me explain what happened in the first four centuries of the development of the church. Cyprian, in 250, was the bishop of the church in northern Africa. And It was a thriving church, and he wrote to his fellow believers, and he said these words. Beloved brethren, we are philosophers not in word, but in deeds. We exhibit our wisdom not by our dress, but by truth. We know virtues by their practice rather than through boasting of them. And here it is. Here's the key idea. We do not speak of great things. We live them. That is a great statement. That's a statement that actually inspired Alan Kreider to write a book called The Patient Ferment of the Early Church. I just got it. I started reading it. Read the first few chapters. I love it. It's fantastic. And what Dr. Kreider is doing is he's talking about the improbability of the rise of Christianity in the first four centuries. And what he's saying, the reason why the church grew 
was not because it sent out missionaries, not because it was open to unbelievers in the context of its worship services. In fact, it actually, it actually was the opposite. In fact, they actually followed something called what's, um, what's called dis- disciplina acrina, which means the discipline of the secret. They actually kept their, kept their services secret from unbelievers. So imagine a church that isn't sending out worldwide missionaries per se. They're, they're, they're not open to unbelievers coming into their fellowship. How did they grow? Twelve, possibly uh, f- uh, five to six million by the fourth century before Constantine. Five to six million. Close to 12% of imperial pop- populace was Christian. In fact, one author said that, that possibly the Christian movement grew 40% per decade. How did that happen? In a context where there's persecution, where there's ostracization happening, where you feel like you're an alien, that you're not part of the inside, you're not sending out missionaries, you're not open to unbelievers coming into your fellowship, how did they do it? And this is his whole book, and here's the bottom line. This is what he said. They did it by living the Christian life. And the way in which they lived the Christian life changed everything. The unbelieving world, they called the pagans back then, saw them living out this life of virtues. And one of the key virtues for three centuries that was discussed by the early church was the the virtue of patience. Patient endurance. The word patience, hupomone, means literally to stand up under, to be to be strong, to withhold, hang in there, keep going. And what he was referring to was this trusting in God, not controlling events, not anxious, not being in a hurry. Kreider goes on to say, when challenged about their ideas, Christians pointed to their embodied behavior, which was so eloquent. Look at my behavior. It's the answer that you're looking for. One sociologist Pierre Bordeaux says that the idea of habitus, which is the word habit, bodily habits, enabled them to address intractable problems that ordinary people faced in ways that offered hope. So they saw them solve problems by trusting God, and it attracted them. And what Kreider discovers is that one particular writer says that pagans found their behavior unsettling. Their behavior was unsettling to such a degree that they changed sides. It says they changed sides. That's the way it was worded. They, they moved from this side to that side because it was own unsettling that, they, that a Christian could live out patience so differently, which was not a virtue of Greco-Roman world. It was not part of their worldview. Patience was not at the high list. And so they lived this out. And I think it cuts across cultural grains. It's the way we respond when we're being revivaled. Jesus does this in chapter 2, verse 21, all the way to 23. While he was reviled, he did not revile in return. How did he do that? Chapter 2, verse 18, work relationships, servants and masters. How are we good employees, godly employees? Makes a difference. Chapter 2, verse 11. Standing firm against fleshly lusts, which wage a war against our souls. We stand against what we want to do to live out what we know God wants us to live out, which is even better. 
It's called obedience. But it's a good thing because it is a good outcome. But it stands against what we naturally want to do and how we want to naturally react. And so the fleshly lusts and the desires that we all want go unmet as we live a life of obedience, trusting in patience that God is going to fulfill our desires. And he will. Uh, Chapter 4, verse 1. Then chapter 4, verse 12. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeals among you. Chapter 5, verse 8. The adversary or devil prowls about like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. But you stand firm. You stand firm. You keep going. You keep moving forward. Results in this ability to stand strong in obedience. And I wrote down three things. How are we to live out a life of obedience? I wrote three things. Be humble, be mindful, and be willing. See, mindful, chapter 5, says, be humble, be humble, excuse me, be humble, chapter 5, Peter says, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God. And then in chapter 2, 2, be mindful, long for the pure milk of the word, so that by it you may grow in respect to salvation if you taste of the kindness of the Lord. Put your mind, set your mind on the word of the Lord. And third, I wrote down, be willing, be willing, be willing to step out and to do what most won't do, to live a life of obedience in all areas. Be willing to do that. I'm willing, Lord, to hand this over to you to be obedient to do. And here's the last thing that I found that we're going to end with this morning is suffering. Because suffering is not the outcome. Suffering leads to the outcome. And we find suffering all throughout Peter. There's no question. I mean, you're distressed by various trials in chapter 1. We we recognize that there are fiery ordeals that happen. And I've categorized suffering in Peter's letter in three ways. Here they are. First of all, it could result, it's, it's a result of actually living a holy life. Suffering is a result of living a holy life. See, in chapter 4, verse 1, the self-denial, this abstaining from fleshly lusts, it's not going to be easy. You're going to suffer. I also wrote down 4.12. It's, it's this persecution, the fiery ordeal that you will be ostracized. You will be persecuted for your faith. It's possible. It happens all the time in other parts of the world. There's, there's a sense where you know you're not one of them. And there's this subtle persecution, ostracization that takes place. Third thing I wrote down was oppression, spiritual oppression. First Peter chapter 5, the adversary. We have an adversary that does not want us to proceed in victory through identification of who we are, living out obedience, and pushing through suffering. And there is a great adversary. Let me give you an example. We as a church are living in a very exciting time because we're about to launch kind of a new phase for the river. It's really exciting. We want to unfold it to the church and bring the church in. And we're praying about it right now. We're just asking the Lord to lead us as a staff. And we're beginning to get together and meet and talk about what's it going to look like for the next 10 years and beyond? How do we restructure maybe? How do we, how do we include new leaders? How do we release more people for ministry? How do we grow more locations for, for, for services and reach deeper into the community? And, and, and I'm looking at my own life going, I'm in a transition time. 
I recognize in the next seven to ten years, I don't want to be in the same position that I'm in now. Wouldn't be healthy for the church. The healthiest thing for our church is for Bill and myself to begin to transition our, 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 our jobs and, and provide new leadership and bring others along that will carry the river forward and we continue to maintain other roles and responsibilities. It's, it's, it's multiplication. It's discipleship. It's health of an organization. And so this is all good that's going on. It's going to be exciting and, and it's an opportunity for us to all come in together and say, we're moving forward and here's our mission and here's our vision. And yet, the adversary doesn't want that to happen, does he? He doesn't want us to move forward with health and excitement and new leadership, new vision and mission, and to see ourselves moving further and further into the community and impacting culture. He doesn't want that. And so what is he going to do? He's going to attack relationships. And so we've had to spend some time, and it was just powerful time, I mean really powerful time as a staff, of coming together, and asking for forgiveness and bringing confession to the table and practicing true humility and saying, I'm sorry for that and, and I've held out judgment or I've done this or I said that or just releasing this to the Lord and coming together and all owning our own stuff. Just like you do in a marriage. You own your own stuff. And actually what's happening is new birth and new life. Trust. We're just releasing this. And God's going to work through it. But unless we got to that point, guess who would have won the day? The adversary. He seeks, like a roaring lion, seeking someone to what? Devour. Don't let Satan have that in your life. You push through. Whether it's in personal denial, self-denial, because you want to pursue a holy life, or whether it's an area where you feel ostracized or persecuted, or it's an area where you feel like you're under attack. You bring that before the Lord. Suffer well, because, I'll end with this, there's a great outcome, a fantastic outcome. What I find here is one seven, the proof of your faith is more precious than gold. And the second thing I find is, but if when you do what is right and suffer for it, you patiently endure and this finds favor with God. There's great favor. This has a great outcome. So let's pray together. So Father, as we lean into com communion together and we come up and we receive Jesus, the representation of your blood and your body, the bread and the juice. We recognize that you did go to the cross to make it even possible for us to live the Christian life. It is through your blood that we're even able to be obedient, Peter says. And so we come expecting, remembering, believing you have something more for us. So we come humbly in Jesus' name.